I want to start out by reading uh, the passage we're going to be working through this morning. It's Acts chapter 17, and uh, starting in verse 16, it's going to be right behind me on the screen. You can follow along. For while Paul, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend all their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in their midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. But Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And of this, he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom were Dionysius, Areopagus, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So in this passage, what we see is Paul is sharing Christ, the claims of Christ, with, with a crowd of skeptics. Um, prior to this point in the book of Acts, he had been hopping around from synagogue to synagogue, speaking with those who, for the most part, held a very common frame of reference for reality. Um, The Old Testament scriptures, he would open them up and he would springboard from there to show them how the prophecies and and the sacrifices and Hebrew history, how it all worked together and and pointed to and found its fulfillment in, in the person and the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. But but now he's in a different place. 
He's in the, the great city of Athens, and Athens was an intellectual epicenter of the ancient world, and deep thinkers would flock there to Athens, and they would study philosophy and, and rhetoric and science, and, and these guys, they knew nothing of the Old Testament, right? They, they were unacquainted uh, with Father Abraham or with Adam and Eve or the Ten Commandments or David and Goliath or any of that. Uh, they'd been brought up on the teachings of like Aristotle and, and Plato and such. And so here's what we see happening in this passage. Paul kind of shifts lanes. Um, he moves into this lane of philosophical, intellectual thought. Basically, he meets them where they're at. Um, and we're going to try to do a little bit of that over the next several weeks. We're starting a new series this morning. It's called, What About That? And I'm hoping that we're going to be able to just put on our thinking caps and uh, tackle um, some of the common questions that keep people from believing. And, and I want to do that because all too often, both believers and, and skeptics, we oftentimes live with this imaginary boundary line between faith and reason, as if somehow they fall into two mutually exclusive categories, different lanes, and you can't cross over from one to the other. Never shall those two intertwine. Uh, I've heard many believers talk about faith and, and describe it as a matter of forget what you think, you just decide to believe, and that settles it. Now, I'm, I'm sure they mean well, but that statement effectively puts the claims of Christ into the same category as the, same, as the claims of Santa Claus. Um, forget whether it actually has any basis in reality, shut down your brain and just believe. So what I want to say is that that is, that's not biblical faith. That's what you would call blind belief, and it really is more like just a fabrication um, more than it is actually faith. So that's the one side of it. On the other end, uh, many in the unbelieving world um, have heard that, and they assume that that is basically representative of what faith is all about. Faith is blind belief. And if you're a thinking person, then understandably, you just can't swallow that, right? And so when the battle lines get drawn, it's an either or, it's either gonna be the brain or it's gonna be belief, the brain wins out and, and faith gets kind of kicked to the curb. And that's kind of the way it happens oftentimes, and it's often because of that flawed either-or, separate lanes way of thinking that many secular minds actually have been outrageously overconfident in predicting the end of faith, the demise of religion. It kind of started in earnest back in the 60s. Uh, one famous atheist philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, made this outrageous announcement when he said, God is dead and we have killed him. Uh, the thesis basically was that faith served as a necessary placeholder 
Um, religion was basically the container into which the ignorant would, would fill it up with everything that didn't make sense to them, everything they, they couldn't understand due to a lack of education and technological innovation or sometimes just good old-fashioned ignorance. But the thought was that the more we learn, the more we progress, the more we move through this enlightened age of reason, the more people are bound to, destined, no other choice but to detach from that religion and just simply replace it with reason. Because, of course, no one would keep believing in an antiquated notion of God in a progressive technological time like we live in. So John Lennon actually believed that when that happened, that that would usher in and unite our world together under the banner of atheistic humanism. You've heard the song, Imagine, right? Uh, Imagine there's no religion. Imagine there's no heaven above us or hell below us, just just the brotherhood of man. Uh, It's a very common sentiment, and truth be told, we don't really need to imagine. It's been tried many times, many places throughout world history. So you can look at Nazi Germany, uh, you can look at North Korea, or you can look at China. Uh, Take your pick, John. Which one would you prefer? You see, history has shown us thus far when God has been taken out of the picture things turn into a bloodbath really quick. And it's a bloodbath, just to, just to be sure, that it far usurps the atrocities that have been committed in the name of God. So to deny that reality, it really is, an, it's an alternate form of blind belief. It's disengaged from reality. And at least John Lennon, was, he was honest enough to admit that. He said, I'm a dreamer, um, even though his dream really ends up looking a whole lot more like a nightmare. Um, so I want to contrast that for a second with, with another dreamer, another man who had a dream, who actually used that phrase, I have a dream. You've heard that one before, right? Uh, unlike Lennon, though, his dream, it didn't take God out of the picture, In fact, it's just the opposite. His dream put God right at the very center. His dream was rooted in faith. It was grounded in Scripture. And Martin Luther King's dream has quantitatively made and continues to make a significant impact in this world on our planet. So the question is, which dream do we prefer? Which dream are we chasing? But here's the thing taking faith out of the equation, it's not as easy as it seems. And it kind of reminds me of the guy who stood on the branch that he was trying to cut down off the tree. You've seen that image before, right? He sawed off the very place that he was standing on, and he ended up free-falling to the ground himself. It's a lot like what I see this this endeavor being like when you take faith out of things, um, things start free-falling. And that, I think, is part of the reason why faith has been shown to be so enduring and why it shows no signs of faltering any time in the near future. 
So according to a 2017 Pew Research report, they project that by 2060, Christianity will continue to not only remain the largest global belief system, it's going to increase from 31 to 32 percent of the world's population. Islam is also going to continue to grow uh, from 24 to 31 percent. Hinduism is projected to take a slight decrease from 15 to 14 percent. Buddhism as well from 7 to 5 percent. Judaism is told to be holding fast at 0.2 percent. But here's the thing. At the same time, by 2060, the proportion of those identifying as atheists, as agnostics, or under the uncategorized category, that's projected to decline from 16 to 13%. So those projections, those statistics, they imply one of two things. Uh, One possibility is either that despite all of the advances in education and innovation and technology, there's still a whole lot of ignorant people out there who need to be fixed. Or or to quote the unfortunate phrase of one politician, they're still clinging to their guns and religion. Uh, That is why, actually, even over this past week, we hear the message from the people in power that the religious people need to either adapt to the prevailing mindset or die a death of irrelevance. We hear that all the time. But there's an alternate explanation, and it's that Nietzsche's secular hypothesis is flawed. It wasn't right. There's more going on than what first appears. I'll leave it to you to draw your own conclusions. The point that that I want to make is simply that biblical faith, it's a faith that makes sense. It's, It's not just the choice for the ignorant and the uninformed. Biblical belief, while it will always call you to go beyond the boundaries of reason, it's not going to call you out of reason. It is not unreasonable. And so that's kind of what we see here in this passage we just read of Paul's account, mixing it up with the philosophers, with the intellectually elite in Athens. And so there's three things uh, that I want to draw out from this episode. The first is the, uh, the reasoning that goes on in this passage. It says, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. The Greek word for for reasoned is dialego. Um, It's where you can probably guess we get the word dialogue from. It's it's a mingling of thoughts. It's an exchange of ideas. It's, It's kind of going back and forth in pursuit of a deeper level of understanding. So Paul assumed that those he was speaking with, that they had the capacity to piece together ideas, to piece them together with outcomes, and to do so in some kind of coherent way. And, you know, that, that reasoning, it seems, has become a bit of a lost art form in our world today. A, a lot of what goes on these days, it seems a whole lot more like just wrestling someone to the ground than actually reasoning with them. There seems to be very little back and forth, but there's a whole lot of self-proclaimed body slamming, right? Anyone who dares to hold a different viewpoint. It's not, hey, 
I understand what you're saying, but I'm not with you there, and here's the reason why, right? That would be reasoning. It's more like this. What kind of moron could you possibly be to hold a viewpoint like that? We got to get past that. See, here's, here's what Paul understood and what, what sometimes we just lose sight of is that just because someone sees something differently doesn't mean they're a threat. It doesn't make them an enemy. The goal of reasoning is to show your side, to show and to tell. It's not to attack and to destroy people. And you can see here, Paul models what that looks like. Here's how he does that. You know, he could have come in, he could have gone there and condemned these pagan idolaters, because that's what they were, right? But what does he say instead? Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious, right? He's He's, he, he actually draws from their stories. He even quotes from one of their poems. What he's doing is he's trying to build bridges to belief, not, not blow them up. Now, on the other side, reasoning also requires this, this willingness to learn, to maybe like chew on and try out some ideas or some explanations that maybe you hadn't considered in the past. And, and that can for sure be unsettling, right? It is unsettling. And you can see it here in this passage. Do you notice how the philosophers, what their first response is to Paul's reasoning? Here's what they say. What is this babbler talking about? That was, that was their first response. I love that. I think that is great because, you know, it came across like nonsense to them. But what I love about it is that even though that was the case, they didn't shut him down. Instead, they invited him in and they kept on listening. It says they brought him into the Areopagus, which was basically a public forum, a place to hear things out. And they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. So if nothing else, I would invite all of us to take a similar approach, to be quick to listen, to be slow to speak, and to be slow to become angry, particularly when we come across ideas that may not sync up with our own pre-established ones. And just let me say this, by the way, that, that is the exact opposite response of what cable news grooms us to do, right? They model outrage for us, not reason. So that's, that's the reasoning we see here. And after the reasoning, we also see that there's a rationale. Paul is making a point. And we already saw that appealing to the Bible, to the Old Testament, that wasn't going to work for them because the Athenians, they didn't know the Bible. And that makes it a lot like today, right? In our country, people in our culture are biblically illiterate in a way that previous generations may not have been. And a lot of times, Christians say that and they just shake their head in disgust. Paul didn't do that. Look at what Paul does. He doesn't appeal to the scriptures, but he appeals in two other realities. The first is creation, and the second is Christ. So he starts out with creation. He talks about and lays out the realities that they encounter in everyday life. And then after that, 
after he's brought a little bit of common framework, he then springs boards to talk about who God is, what he must be like. And then from there, he then leads into presenting the gospel, talking about Jesus. Here's the idea. Um, and I, I learned this. This is one of the few benefits of going to a Christian liberal arts college where it got jammed down my throat that all truth is God's truth, right? Not just scripture. Scripture is truth. But anywhere you encounter truth in all of creation, God is the ultimate author of it. Paul understood that, and, and here's how he started. He says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. So let me just clarify what Paul didn't say. He didn't say, hey guys, you're awesome. Believe whatever you want. It's all good. It doesn't matter. He didn't say that. He very politely, but very directly challenges the assumptions of the existing belief system. And here's what I think is pretty cool. The Athenians' assumptions about the way the world was and what was real, it wasn't a whole lot different than those that we find in our own American culture today. So it comes down to this basic issue, this question, and it's an either or one. Did, did we create God or did God create us? That's, that's what Paul is bringing out and, and wrestling with. And the question is, is there a sovereign eternal creator God who exists outside of time, who exists independent out of the box of created and the limitations that we know of in our existence. That's the one option. Or as the Athenians thought, and as many Americans presume, is God nothing more than a man-made construct like the idols in Athens? You see, if God is just a construct, if it's something that we create, then who he is doesn't matter. It's entirely up to you. If what's created is all there is and, and nothing exists outside of the box of what we encounter with our senses, then, then it, it does make sense. Feel free to just make God into whoever you want him to be because at the end of the day, according to that paradigm, God is really nothing more than a coping mechanism to get you through your day or your week or your life. And, you know, that's where the dogma comes from that we so often hear today, the dogma that you've heard it, right? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. That's, that's what I call, like, an unexamined assumption, that means that it is dogma. It's assumed to be true, but it's not proven. It cannot be proven. It's kind of like when I went to France. Um, went to a completely different culture, just got to know the culture in France and, and mixed it up with some, some pastors out there. And uh, we learned that this American assumption that we, we say so often is, you can do whatever you want as long as you work hard at it. You can accomplish anything. They, they don't buy that there. And you know what? It's not true. <laughs> it's, 
It's a nice, it's a nice faith uh, presumption, but you cannot do anything as long as you try hard enough. If that were the case, I would have won the Tour de France by now. <laughs> and they say, if you want to be a professional athlete, the best thing you can do is choose your parents wisely, which, of course, you cannot do. Unproven dogma that there is nothing self-evident about, and, and that is one that is just dripping in assumptions. And so we've got these two. We either, either we created God or God created us. Let's, let's just line them up side by side, right? God created us, we created God. Either we owe our existence to a sovereign, eternal God or to random chance. And make no mistake, both of them are assumptions. They're faith statements. They cannot be proven, but they can be tested, and this is where we're putting our thinking caps on a little bit. The question is this, which one of those more accurately reflects and accounts for the experience of your life, your reality? A guy named N.T. Wright, he's an Oxford theologian, he wrote a book, Simply Christian, which was basically for him to share with all of these intellectual elites that he was in, in the midst of, why Christianity makes sense. And he talks about these common realities that we cannot seem to get away from, that he says these are signposts that echo us and point us to the eternal. One of them, he says, is, is the drive for justice. So the question is this, why does injustice bother us so much, right? Right? If it's simply the survival of the fittest, it really ought not to because that's just the natural progression of the way things are. But we can't, we can't get away from it, can we? We can't get away from moral categories. There are certain things that are right. There are other things that are wrong. And if we take that even a step deeper, the question is this, are there some things that aren't just wrong for us but are wrong for everyone? So take, for example, selling a child into sex slavery. Of course, everyone here in this room, most people in our country would say that is evil. That is absolutely evil. That's the response today and here. But it's not always been the majority view. And maybe there's even certain cultures around our world where it might not be true right now. So here's the question. Who are you to say that they're wrong because you're in the United States? Does that make your view superior to yours? And how about this? What if one day that changes? What if 300 years from now, Americans believe it's not wrong anymore? What then? I expect you're still going to say it's wrong. I hope you would. But here's the question. The follow-up question is this. Why? See, this is where we're going. The Christian faith, it provides a very cogent, clear answer to that question. It is always wrong because humanity has been created in the image of God with inerrant worth that's to be treated with dignity. But here's the question. Where do you go to get your why if you don't have that grounding? 
if we're really just the product of some kind of cosmological accident, on what basis do you come up with any absolute moral assertion? I've listened, I've tried to understand that, and I've found very few secular people able to work that one through in a coherent way. Most end up committing what I would say is an illegal formation offsides penalty, right? That means they'll grab hold of the values of the very faith they reject. And it goes back to the illustration, sawing off the branch that you're standing on. Justice. Can't get away from it. It's a signpost. How do you make sense of it? It points us to something outside of us, something eternal, uh, according to right. And he also goes on to describe other signposts. That's not the only one. Things like our yearning for significance. Why do we think we matter? Why do we care about things mattering? Should they matter? If all there is is just what we see? Uh, relationships, even beauty. Why does beauty move us? Uh, what his point is that they all show us that these are realities in our lives that simply They don't fit into the container of just what we can see and feel and hear and touch and smell, right? It just doesn't fit. And so the question that we wrestle with is is not which framework do I prefer. The question is which one fits, which one contains the realities of my life, which one has the explanatory power to hold what we encounter in life. C.S. Lewis said almost the same thing in a very similar way in, in mere Christianity. He said this, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction of those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. So he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Think about that. Again, we're putting on our thinking caps, we're doing some, some processing, some examination. And so if, if and when you get to the place where you kind of say, that, that fits, that, that works, it makes sense that there is an eternal God who exists outside of our limitations, who's not just something we come up with, and, and yet he's involved in his creation. But how would you know it? Where do you go from there? What's the next step? And Paul goes at this point from creation to talking about Christ, and he talks specifically about the reality of the resurrected Jesus. Uh, He presents these serious thinkers, right? These intellectual philosophers, and he throws out on the table the reality of somebody came back from the dead, Jesus was resurrected. In fact, he doesn't just do it once. He does it three times in this passage. And and that's actually the part that sounded like nonsense to them. But he doesn't let go of that. He keeps going back to it because the Christian faith, it rises and falls on the reality of Jesus' resurrection. And, And that gets us to the very heart of the gospel message that this God who created us, this eternal God at a particular moment in history, entered into his creation in the most personal way possible. Jesus was born. Not a myth story, 
not a pretend fabricated fairy tale, as a part of the historical record. He came fully God, fully human, and he died a terrible death, but he died just like every other person in the course of human history ever has. But unlike every other person, he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead, resurrected back to eternal life. In other words, this person, this one individual, defeated death. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this in the past. I think we talked about the reality of the resurrection back on Easter. So I'm not going to go into that today. But what I do want to tell you is that according to the Christian faith, Jesus validating evidence for everything he did, who he is, and what he said is found in that truth, in that event, in his resurrection. And so a lot of people will say, well, you know what? I'm scientific. I need scientific evidence. If it can't be scientifically proven, I'm not going to believe it. We, we are going to dive into the science question, um, and I've got a, I got a, a real scientist who's going to speak on that in a couple of weeks. Um, but other people will say, if Jesus would just show up physically to me, then I'll believe him. Or if Jesus just does this for me, then I'll believe him. So I, I, I want to gently push back on that if that's kind of something you've heard or you've said yourself. Here's where it's at. Jesus claimed to have risen from the dead. And if the evidence that something like that is true and it's there... Why in the world would you dismiss it just because it's not the evidence you want? Are you really going to do that? Are you really going to just limit your investigative capacity to just your preferences? Would you do that with anything else? Something to think about. So we looked at the reasoning, we looked at the rationale, and let me quickly close uh, by looking at the response. It says, Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius and Areopagate and a woman named Demarius and others with them. So what we see here at the end of this story is three very different responses. Some, you could say, they just could care less. You know, they, they mocked. It didn't make any sense. They walked away. And I got to say, as someone who invests a significant part of my life in communicating the claims of Christ, I kind of find that somewhat reassuring. Because, like, Paul is the greatest evangelist that the church has ever known. He's one of the greatest minds of the first centuries. But even with that said... Some thought he was speaking nonsense. That happened then. It happens today. And I'd love to be able to lay out some kind of incontrovertible case for Christ that's so compelling that no one could possibly say no. I, I wish I could. I can't. Um, Tim Keller actually talks about... Uh, Two people. One of them is Bertrand Russell. He was a brilliant British philosopher, an atheist philosopher. Um, at the end of his life, he was asked this question What if you're wrong? What if you die and you find that you stand before God at the judgment seat? 
What then? And his immediate response was, don't blame me, God. There wasn't enough evidence, right? This is someone who is smarter than probably all of us. But then you've got people like uh, Francis Collins on the other side, and uh, you can look him up today. He's led the Human Genome Project. He's one of the leading scientists in the world today. He's the, he was the head of the National Institute of Health, and, and he started out as an atheist, and he converted to Christianity. Why? Because he was compelled by the evidence. And that's just, uh, that's just a reality, right? Um, Different people are going to see things different ways. So there's those who care less, but there's also in this category, there were those who were convinced, right? We, we even have their names. They're written down on the record. These people heard what Paul was speaking about. They found it compelling. They crossed the line of faith and they decided, yeah, I'm in. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to trust him. See, that's still happening today as well. Maybe Maybe it's happening somewhere in this room this morning. Maybe for some of you, you're, you're hearing this and you're seeing the pieces click together. It's resonating and you're ready to respond. And I'm, I'd be happy to, to walk with you through that and, and lead you in a simple prayer of faith or, or, or meet one of our people in the prayer rooms and, uh, and talk that through. And there's a third category as well. Um, you had the care less, you had the convince, and then you also had the curious, right? These people were, hmm, this is intriguing, but I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm not compelled. And what they said is, tell me more. I, I want to hear more. And I, I just want to just give validity to that response, I think that's a very honest response. It's a very authentic response. And if that may be where you're at, you're, you're, you're kind of scratching your head, you're thinking it through, and you're just like, hmm, I've got some things to chew on here. That's great. I'm happy you're here. I hope you're in a place where you can dialogue and reason and work things through. And I hope you'll continue and you'll come back uh, next week. And we're going to continue to just look at and see that, uh, that, that some of these questions, uh, hard questions, challenging questions, can be wrestled through, can be worked through, that, that faith in Christ is a faith that makes sense. Let's pray together.